0: For two weeks prior to this Sunday, I have been urging you as a congregation to be like Paul. In fact, the Bible says, Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the thing which makes it safe regarding imitating Paul is that he imitated the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're going to continue our consideration today of this shortest of all Paul's writings, which we have, but also the most personal of all the writings of the Apostle Paul. And today, the focus is going to be, the challenge is, be like Christ, be like Paul, rather, in your influence. Let's begin with verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, "...since I am such a person as Paul the Aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel." But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner... Accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. In his book, The 100, Ranking History's Most Influential Persons, Michael Hart rates the Apostle Paul sixth. Now, I draw your attention to the title of the book, History's Most Influential Persons eternity's most influential persons would undoubtedly rank the Apostle Paul higher than sixth. Now, none of us is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We don't have the capacity to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. We don't have the gifting that the Apostle Paul had. He was multi-gifted. And I would in no way want to limit what God might want to do in anyone's life, but we probably will not approximate the stature of the Apostle Paul in terms of our influence in the world. However, the things that we're going to see about the Apostle Paul which emerge from this text of Scripture are all within your grasp if you know Jesus Christ, without exception. There are six truths which surface from this passage of Scripture. I'm going to ask somebody to get me some water. I'm beginning to... (coughs) Excuse me. Hopefully that'll get... That's gross, isn't it? Excuse me. That's really gross. I need some... Water. I couldn't find any for church today, so maybe I won't need it. All right. The first thing this passage of Scripture teaches us that made Paul a person of influence is that we, he was a humble person. Let's look again at verse 8, which contains this information, and then part of verse 9. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in the word translated confidence is freedom to speak authoritatively is actually what is meant here. So let me substitute that interpretation. Therefore, though I have freedom to speak authoritatively in Christ to order you to do what is proper. What was his freedom to speak authoritatively? He was an apostle of Jesus Christ albeit he describes himself as the least of the apostles, yet he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have pulled the apostle card out on Philemon if he had wanted to. But he did not. The reason is because he was a man of humility. And what this tells us, by the way, whenever the apostle Paul uses the word apostle to give him credibility, he's not doing it because he's on some kind of spiritual ego trip. He's doing it because he's Wanting to correct false understanding or false teaching in the churches to whom he wrote those words, I'm an apostle, to validate the message that was given. We know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, that I'm nothing. He did not see himself as anything, but his confidence, his freedom to speak authoritatively was founded in whom? In Christ. Now, are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're just as much in Christ as the Apostle Paul was in Christ. Therefore, you have the same capacity to be a person of humility, just like the Apostle Paul had the capacity to be a person of humility. Look at the way in which he describes himself in verse 9. In the middle of the verse, he says, I am such a person as Paul the aged. Hippocrates said that people who qualified for being aged we between the ages of 49 and 56. I'm just about to go over the edge. <laughs> he went on to call really old people Geron. It's the Greek word from which our English word gerontology is derived. It won't be long before I'll be Geron. <laughs> In fact, one year and three days from now, I'll be Geron. But Paul saw himself as just an aged man, a well-worn disciple of Jesus Christ, And then he says, as we've seen earlier, does not require interpretation. Also, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. If you and I are going to have any influence for God upon people for eternity, we're going to have to be uh, people of humility. (coughs) A week ago yesterday, I was on my way to an appointment here in my office As I was coming from my car, I ran into Mike Garland. Mike and I got into a conversation about something that was really important because he was trying to minister to a co-worker, and he was asking, Pastor, do you know somebody that might be able to help this man? We were able to link him up with another brother in our church, and hopefully God's doing that work. Well, in the process, I noticed as I stood beside one of the portables out of the corner of my eye, there were 400 people, by the way, who were our guests that day. We'd invited them to come to do a music theory test didn't charge them a penny. This lady came out, and I could tell she was sort of large and in charge, not physically large, I wouldn't say that, but I could tell she was feeling her sense of importance, and it kind of made me bristle for some reason. I'm not sure why, but I noticed out of the corner of my eye, she kind of gestured to somebody, and that somebody was a policeman. He wasn't a rent-a-cop. He was a real live El Paso policeman. And he came up to me and to Mike, And he addressed his words to me, and he said, Sir, you're going to have to move. And I said to him, I'm the pastor of this church, and we will move when we get through talking. And Mike, is that about right what I said? I don't know if I said it quite that nicely to him. But Mike, being a dear brother in the Lord and a mature Christian more than I was at that moment, he put his arm around me, you know, he kind of started moving me during this... and I went in and got the couple that I was doing some premarital counseling with situated in my office and then I knew what I had to do. i had been very, very rude to this policeman. I love law enforcement officers. You know, there's a video game that's going to be released. It's called 25 to Life. And the whole object of the game is to kill law officers. Can you imagine? Well, I got up and I went out found that policeman. I was so grateful that he was still there. And I said, sir, I was very rude to you. Would you please forgive me? Now, I lost my influence for the Lord on that man when I acted out the way I acted out. In my sense of self-importance, my self-inflated pastoring, I told this man, really, the way things were. But you know, I might as well just have been playing that game 25 to life in relationship to him. I blew him away. A man whom I have really respect. My problem was with the lady, not with the man. <laughs> and that probably says more about me than I would like to let you know. In order for you or me to be a person of influence, we must be humble like the apostle Paul. But also we must be gentle. Now remember what Jesus said He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In other words, be discipled by me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Remember, Paul says, imitate me. Be like me in influence, because I'm being like Jesus Christ. Was Jesus humble? Yes. Was Jesus gentle? By all means, he was gentle. And the word translated gentle that Jesus uses... In Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the word which was used to describe the breaking of a wild stallion and that stallion's being brought under the control of its master. It's not a diminishing of power, those who are gentle. Rather, it is a bringing of that power under the control of the master. Who is our master? If we know Jesus, he's our master. We're not our own captains of our own fate. Jesus Christ is our master. We will be gentle as the Apostle Paul is. How do we know that he was a gentle man? Well, we know it from verse 9. Look at it. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. And then he picks up the same refrain in verse 10. I appeal to you. And then look at verse 14. Without your consent, Philemon. Now, did Paul have the authority to tell Philemon what to do? He had it on two levels. The more obvious level is he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of a handful of people who've ever lived, less than 15 who would have that name in the strict sense of the term. But also he was not only Onesimus' spiritual father, but he was also Philemon's spiritual father. He could have pulled that card as well, but he didn't do it. He said, I won't do anything without your consent. And let's read the rest of verse 14. So that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your free will. For love's sake. Love is the order of the day in the church of Jesus Christ. And love can't be forced. It has to be something which comes from within. Paul knew that. Any successful parent knows that. You cannot force your will upon your child especially when that child becomes an adult. You have to rather influence that child spiritually or naturally by being a person who is a person of gentleness. In the 1960s, Helen Rosevere graduated from Cambridge University in Great Britain with a degree as a medical doctor. She had the world wide open to her. She could have made lots of money if she'd have stayed in Great Britain or gone to other places in the Commonwealth or even come to the United States or somewhere else in Europe. But she chose, rather, to follow the inclination of her heart, which was to lead her to the Congo in the 1960s. Now, this took quite a woman to do this. It would take quite a person to do it. But a single woman going into the Congo in the 1960s was a dangerous venture. But she went because she was driven internally to go there. Her whole vision was that she was going to make a difference in that nation. She came there only to find what she thought would be a hospital, was just a ramshackled piece of property that was called a clinic. It was there that she had to do surgery. Over and over, there was so much need, she continued to do her surgery. She wrote her mother in England and said, Mother, please find me a book on how to build hospitals. Her mother replied by saying, There is no book in print in England that tells you how to build a hospital. But I did find one which says how to make bricks. So I've sent that to you. She read it, and she decided to make bricks. She built a brickyard and had a brick kiln there. grew got some of the people who helped her in the clinic to start helping her build bricks when they weren't performing surgery. In the process one day, she drove a nail through her finger. I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but she screamed in pain. And, of course, those working with her took her immediately to the clinic where, once again in pain, this nail was removed. After she had calmed down a bit, her right-hand man, a Congolese man, said to her, Doctor, when you are in the surgery room, you are a God to us. But when you are in the brickyard with blood dripping from your finger, you are our sister. It was a transitional, transforming moment in that woman's life. In fact, she wrote her mother a letter. I thought I had come here to build hospitals, but I realized that I'm simply sent here To heal people. She became a person of incredible influence. Through the rest of her ministry there in Congo. Because she was a gentle person. She did not feel inflated with her sense of self-importance. Talking down to people. Looking down. Being the great white savior who came to that area. To help the people who were in need. So Paul was a gentle man as well as a humble man. But he was also a relational person. And this is so important. If you and I are going to make a difference, we're going to have to be relational. Look at verse 10 again. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What he's saying is, I've been the tool in God's sovereign hand to introduce Onesimus to the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently introduce him to you, Lord I've been this kind of tool in his hand. He's my spiritual child. Now, you might say, those of you who are ladies, this man knew nothing about giving birth, and you'd be exactly right. But let me remind you that this man put forth this great effort over a long period of time to see that this man, Onesimus, and others whom he ministered to were matured in Christ. It's one thing to be an obstetrician, spiritually speaking, It's quite another thing to be a pediatrician and then to follow that person's development throughout the entirety of his or her spiritual development. It takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of relating in order for that to happen. Now, if you will, let's look at verse 16, which further underscores the imperative of our being relational people in addition to being humble and gentle people. No longer as a slave. Now, you and I have no way to estimate the power of this statement. This was Onesimus' charter of liberation. It was the Magna Carta of Christian slaves. And by the way, there were 60 million Christian slaves in the Roman Empire. Or slaves, many of whom were Christians. I don't know how many of them were Christians. There were 60 million in the Roman Empire. They were vital to what went on. In fact, Rome, it was said, one third of the population were slaves, just the city of Rome itself. And here we hear the word of God coming from Paul to Philemon. When he comes back to you, he's no longer to be seen as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. What endearing terms we read here. A beloved brother especially to me, since he's my spiritual child, but how much more to you, both in the flesh. You're getting a slave back, and he's going to be different, is what Paul was saying to Philemon. You're going to see the difference. You'll have to see it with your own eyes. But also in the Lord, what he's saying is, there's coming a day when the relationship between you and Onesimus as master to slave is ending. But there will never be a day when the relationship between Onesimus and you will end because you're brothers in Christ, beloved brothers in Christ. And we already have seen what a great heart of love Philemon had and how undoubtedly he responded properly to this suggestion. I think he set him free. Now, I want to be sure that you understand. This book, Philemon, is not a treatise against slavery. It is, however a statement about the reconciliation of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to understand that. The seed for the abolition of slavery was really sown in this letter. We know what Paul said. We read it from 1 Corinthians 7 earlier. He said, if you can get free, go for it. I mean, anybody who's ever been enslaved wants to be free. It's beneath the dignity of people created in God's image that they should be slaves. And unfortunately, Christian people have used texts like this, also like Exodus 21, to justify slavery. There is no justification for slavery. Because who owns you if you're a Christian? Jesus does, right? He's bought you with a price. Therefore, you glorify Him in your body. Okay, but we see relational characteristics in Paul that made him influential. And this may be the most important of all. If you are a person that's going to have lasting influence, you've got to invest in other people. You've got to pour your life into other people. And I don't mean being somebody who glad hands people, slaps them on the back, smiles, says how you're doing. Not a hell fellow well met. I'm talking about somebody who really digs into the life of at least one more person on the spiritual level and pours life, the life of Christ coming through you, into that person's life. This is the kind of person who is influential forever, not just a flash in the pan, not someone who just makes a big splash somewhere and then the next thing you know that person is burned out like a meteorite entering the atmosphere, but a person who deliberately and daily slugs it out in relationships with people to help them realize their potential in Christ. Here's a fourth thing that is true of him. that must be true of us. He was a, a man who was sacrificial in the way in which he related. Let's look at verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. What he's saying is, when I send Onesimus back to you, Philemon... I'm sending part of me back to you. And he elaborates on that in verse 13. Whom I wish to keep with me. The word translated wish suggests that there was great deliberation in his heart and mind as he was deciding should I keep Onesimus here or should I send him back. It was not a slam dunk for him. There was deliberation accompanied by inclination to keep him with him. He really wanted to keep him with him. He needed him. Remember, he was an aged person and a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But he goes on to say, So that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. And then look at another example of his sacrifice in verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. He was serious. He was saying... For any possessions which he stole from you, I'll pay them. And not only that, probably what he meant also was that any labor that you lost because of his absence, I will make it right. Now how does that apply to you and me? Remember this is a letter about reconciliation. Paul was going to whatever length he found necessary to reunite Philemon and Onesimus. He was going to great personal sacrifice in relationship and with regard to his bank account to see that these brothers got together. Do you have that heart? Remember, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry every last Christian has been called to according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Have you sacrificed your time Have you risked a relationship being lost by reaching out to somebody to put them back in touch with God and in many cases back in touch with someone else in order to do what you know the Lord wants you to do so that they can be reconciled? Do you understand how important this matter of reconciliation is to the future of the church of Jesus Christ? Please remember what Jesus says in John 17, that the world will have every right to reject Jesus if we who know Jesus do not have unity in the church. Paul understood that. And anyone who has influence will also understand that. Humble, gentle, relational, sacrificial, but also he was an ethical man. He did what was right, even though... He could have rationalized otherwise. Look at verse 12. We've looked at it once, but I want to focus on the first part. I have sent him back to you in person. He didn't have to send it back. You know what Paul could have rationalized and maybe even justified in his own mind? He could have said something like this. After all, he's a new creature in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far have his sins been removed from him. And he would have been right, right? Anybody who comes to Christ is a new creation. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed all our transgressions from us. When we receive Jesus, we are born again. We're new people. But that does not nullify the behavior that was illegal and unlawful, unethical, that we engaged in before. And what basically Paul was saying to Onesimus, Onesimus, you've got to go back and face the music. And there's a wonderful application here. The influence on Philemon was undoubtedly increased dramatically. When Philemon came back, he was accompanied by Tychicus, by the way, and this is just like the Lord. He didn't have to go alone. He brought the letter. Can you imagine he knew the contents of the letter, and he brought it right to Philemon and handed it to him. It was like sealing his own death warrant. It was really risky. In this particular era in history, there is record of a man named Padanius Secundus, who was the master of 400 slaves. One of his slaves killed him. And when that slave was brought to trial and found guilty, not only did the prosecution call for his execution, but for the execution of all 400 slaves and the law upheld it. All 400 were killed. That's the kind of environment in which Onesimus lived. And he goes back and he knew what went on. He knew also that if a master was lenient to a runaway slave, that that master might, by law, be able to brand an F on his forehead, fugitivus, from which we get our word fugitive. And in the case of this particular runaway slave. He was also a thief, which would have been able to add the word CF, or the letter CF, cave furum, which means beware the thief. He knew those things. But he went back, because the Apostle Paul told him to go back, and he did it because he was an ethical person. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, it does not remove the things that we did in the past that were wrong, illegal, we need to get those right. That verifies the gospel. Because surely what happened with Philemon when Onesimus got back and he began to work with his boss again, his master, he saw that this man had really been changed. Really. He was a different man. There are many people who claim to know Christ They've made a profession of faith. They've made it really loudly, in fact. But there's virtually no difference in the way in which they lived. In the 1950s, there was a man in organized crime named Mickey Cohen, and he made a profession of faith very public and very loudly. And the church was excited. I am not know about the church at large because here was a member of the underworld who'd supposedly given his life to Christ. But for months, there was no change. People kept waiting to see the change. He continued to conduct business as he had previously. There was no change in his life. When he was confronted about that by some brothers in Christ, he said, well, when a person is a football player and becomes a Christian, he's still a football player. Good reasoning, right? And he went on down the line. He says, I'm a gangster. I'm sorry, Mickey. And all others who come to Christ, there's a change. Paul was a man who was ethical. If you and I are going to have influence, we're going to have to be men and women of integrity who uphold the law that God's established in our land. Well, here's, i say the best one for last. At least to me, it's the best one. He was transformational. Transformational. We see this in Onesimus' life. Let's look again at verse 11. Onesimus, by the way, literally means profitable. That's what his name meant, profitable, who formerly was useless to you. Look at verse 18. But if, and the word translated if really would be better translated since, but since he has wronged you and owes you something, he stole from him. He had wronged him. He's so we see that he had changed. He was useless before, and now he is useful both to you, Philemon. How was he useful to Philemon? Well, look at verse 13. Whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf... See, when Paul was in prison in Rome, Philemon couldn't be there. Distance and circumstances otherwise kept him from being there. But he was there without his even knowing it. How? In his slave. If he had been able to send the slave, he thought that's a great idea. A great idea. And we think about Onesimus, how did he get there? Well, he thought he was running away, didn't he? But where was he running? Right into the arms of God. Amazing. He went from, think of the Mediterranean map, think of over here in the east, modern day Turkey. That's where. He started from in the Lycus River Valley, really right in the south-central part. He had to have gone to Ephesus to catch a ship and go from Ephesus all the way across the Mediterranean to the boot heel of Italy, then get there and then travel by foot probably all the way to Rome. Tacitus said this, that everything horrible and disgraceful finally finds its way to Rome. It was a terrible place. And he went there, and he knew if he got caught, bad things would happen to him. So he tried to blend in to the underworld of that vast city, Rome. And somehow or another, he got word that Paul was there, and he had heard his master speak of the man who had led him to Christ, the Apostle Paul. And he, some way or another, found his way there. Was it accidental that Paul was there when Onesimus got there? Or was it accidental that Onesimus ended up with Paul? Absolutely not. It was providential. And look at verse 15. For perhaps, and he's being very clever here, Onesimus was for this reason separated from you for a while. Notice he does not say he ran away from you for a while. That would be action on Onesimus's part. That's the way Onesimus looked at it. But look what he says. He was separated from you. This is a passive voice verb. Meaning that actually Onesimus was a pawn in somebody else's hand. Whose hand took Onesimus from the middle of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, all the way to Rome? Who did it? It was God. And why did he do it? Because he knew that that was the place he needed to meet Jesus Christ. I've had many people tell me since I've been the pastor here, Pastor, I didn't want to come to El Paso. I thought I was coming to El Paso to work for and then fill in the blank with the company. I came here kicking and screaming. But you know, Pastor, I know who sent me here. The Lord brought me here so I could meet Jesus Christ, be born again, have eternal life, and make a difference. Onesimus was transformed. By the power of God mediated through a man named Paul. The same power that is resident in every last Christian in this room. The power of the Holy Spirit to be a humble person, a gentle person, a relational, sacrificial, an ethical person. You know, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be all those things. Every one of us is capable and being used by God to transform people like Onesimus. When people become Christians, by the way, some people think that they become so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. Well, I suggest that a person who's really been born again is a person who will be the best he or she could ever have been, far superior to that person's life outside of Jesus. But coming to Jesus, we quit doing it for self We quit doing it for our family. We quit doing it for our mothers, our daddies, whoever we're doing it for because it's the Lord Christ we're serving. That happened to Onesimus. It changed him. But not only was Onesimus transformed by Paul, also Philemon was transformed by Paul. How do we know that? Well, this is not in the text per se, But history is so kind to give us this insight into Philemon and Onesimus' life. About 50 years after the book of Philemon was written, a man named Ignatius of Antioch, who was the bishop of Antioch, was arrested by the Roman government. And he was on his way to his death in Rome. As the entourage was making its way toward Rome, they would stop in significant cities, one of which was Ephesus. And because he was a harmless old man, Ignatius was able to receive guests. And wherever they would stop, word preceded that he was coming and Christians would come. When he came to Ephesus, he spoke of the fact that a certain Onesimus came to see him. And he was not just any ordinary person in the church. He was the bishop of Ephesus. He was the head pastor. He was the overseer of the entire church in this most large and significant city in Asia Minor. How did that happen? Well, he had to be set free. Philemon saw what the Lord was saying to him through this letter from Paul. He set him free. And Onesimus continued to grow. Now, here's something I appreciate very much as a suggestion. Don't say to anybody that this is the way it happened, but I think it's quite possible, if not probable. How do you suppose we have in our Bible the 13 books that Paul wrote? How do you suppose we have them? There are all kinds of ideas, but here's one suggestion. That out of his great gratitude to Paul, his father in the faith who begot him in prison, Onesimus carefully gathered up the epistles of Paul, and bound them together and then slipped this little personal letter, which really doesn't seem to fit, does it, when you look at the other letters of Paul? It's so personal in its nature. It's so completely different. He slipped it in there. And aren't you glad he did? I sure am. i tell you, I've been blessed by my preparation. i never taught out of the book of Philemon, but I've been challenged probably unlike Anything I've done to prepare to share with a group like you from this book in recent days. I've been challenged to be a person who is victorious in my praying like Paul. But here, to be a person of influence. You want to be a person of influence, do you? If you don't, shame on you. Because you're going to have to give an account of your life. God. I'm going to stand before the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord. And each one in this room will give an answer to God for what we did with the life which we have. But it shouldn't scare you and me. If we know Jesus, Christ is in us, we can imitate Paul in the way in which he imitated Jesus. Was Jesus humble? We've seen yes. Was he gentle? Yes. Was he relational? Yes. Oh, yes. Was he sacrificial? By all means, he gave his life as a ransom for our sins. Was he a man who was ethical always and a transformational man? Many of you have seen the play, read the book, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. The primary character, of course, is Jean Valjean. You may remember that dramatic scene when Valjean has stolen from the priest who has taken him into his home and he's been apprehended he's brought back to the priest and the priest when he sees Valjean remember what he says to him I'm very angry with you Jean Valjean why didn't you take the candlesticks too I told you to take the candlesticks and all of a sudden the authorities case dissolved right there through the grace of this man the authorities leave and then what does the priest say to Jean Valjean He says, Jean Valjean, remember that you promised God today that you would be a new man. I have bought you. I have bought you with this silver. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred. And I give you back to God. And if you follow the story, he became a redeemer of sorts to a prostitute, to an orphan. He even sought to be that kind of redeemer to the man who sought his own life, Jaubert. Jesus Christ wants us to be these, this kind of person, a person of influence. And it certainly is within our grasp. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we want to be useful to you, Lord, as Onesimus became useful, we pray in Jesus' name that you would empower us. Amen. Let's stand together for our time of commitment. You come as God has spoken to you.
1: Temptations of my